my wife and I both majored in music. I haven't sung in 20 years, so you know who got all the talent in our family. My daughter did. I'm glad to be here. I was able to visit the campus in 1985 when the college was in a transition at that time, and it's exciting to see what has happened here. I was here three years ago when Amy came as a freshman. I was so impressed with what I saw and heard. I was driving to campus this morning, and uh, I took a wrong turn. My sense of direction is quite poor, and I ended up going down 126. Uh, brought back memories from my childhood. There are a group of men standing out on the side of the road. Some of them were in groups, and some of them were standing alone. But as I made the U-turn and I came back, it dawned on me who they were and what they were doing. They were standing, waiting, and hoping that someone would come by and offer them a day's worth of work. I don't know whether they're legal or illegal aliens, but I do know they were looking for something to do. As I said, some of them were standing in groups, and they were kind of laughing with one another, but there were a number of men who were standing with their hands thrust in their pockets with a real look of desperation about them. I grew up in the South, and I remember seeing groups of men, African-American men, standing on the streets of Miami, Florida, hoping that someone would come by and give them work for the day. Enough money to buy milk and bread to get through until tomorrow, and then maybe if something happened, they'd have a job that would be more permanent in nature. But there, too, was a look about these men of quiet desperation, hoping that someone would come and rescue them from the state of affairs in which they found themselves. In December, <clears throat> when our president visited Somalia, our former president, President Bush, when he visited Somalia, I saw the pictures that were broadcast back home, and I saw the crowds that gathered around wherever he was. I saw him nearly moved to tears by what he discovered in Somalia. I've had the opportunity to visit Brazil on a number of occasions. I've been in Sao Paulo four times. And every time I go, as we leave the city in the outskirts and we, we drive through the slums of Sao Paulo, it, it, it's, it's so staggering for me to see the incredible poverty in which people live. I've had the opportunity to talk to some people in that situation, at least through an interpreter. Desperate, hoping, praying that someone will change their life. Well, someone came who has the potential to change their lives. And John records that coming with these words that have always kind of struck me in such a powerful way. So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's one thing about traveling to Sao Paulo and visiting the slums. I know that when my visit's over, I'm going to drive to the airport and I'm going to get on an American Airlines flight or a Varig Airlines flight and I'm going to fly back to Miami. In October, I visited Lima, Peru. I've never been in any place that I've ever seen any more desperate than Lima, Peru. 
And I remember when I, when I landed back in Santiago, Chile, that I got off the plane and I was so glad to be back where things were almost normal. I had seen such poverty and it was... <laughs> I could leave. They couldn't. When George Bush visited the Somalians, when he was there, they came and they gathered around him by the hundreds and by the thousands and they saw in him a representative of this country. Hope. When Christ came, He came into the world. He took upon Himself flesh. And John says He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He came and He took up residence among us. He, as the commentators tell us, He tabernacled. He pitched His tent. He came to live in the slum. As big a leap as it is for me, a very comfortable middle-class white-collar North American who lives in a very nice community and a very nice home drive, a very nice car, more clothes than I could ever wear. I have more sweaters. I have four drawers of sweaters in my house. My wife threatens to kill me every time I bring a new one home. I've got more than I could ever hope for or ever need. And to make that leap into Sao Paulo is shocking and staggering to me. But the chasm that I crossed to go to Sao Paulo, Brazil, is nothing compared to the chasm that Jesus Christ crossed to come from heaven's glory to earth. And he did it willingly. And he did it for a purpose. And I'm not going to focus on the, the crucifixion and resurrection this morning. I'm not going to focus on that theological aspect. We could sit here and talk about the importance of the redemptive act of Christ on the cross, but there's something here in John that strikes me. He became flesh and He dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. We were able to see the essence of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That phrase that John uses, that he was full of grace and truth, tells us something about his nature. Moses writes in Exodus, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He came and He lived among us. He leaped the chasm between heaven and earth and He said, Look me over. We beheld His glory. There is a, the concept of a calm contemplation. John, when he wrote that little epistle at the end of the New Testament, said our hands handled Him. We touched Him. We were there with Him. We saw Him in the most intimate of situations. We observed His life day and night for three years. He came and He dwelt among us. And He allowed us to see God in Him. When Jesus came to the end of His ministry, when He came to the night of His arrest before His trial and crucifixion, He gathered His apostles in a room, they partook of a meal, and then they left the city of Jerusalem and began to make their way out into the countryside to a place called Gethsemane, a place where apparently they had often gone. Gethsemane was on the road 
to Bethany. And so as they were leaving that night, they had been staying in Bethany. I'm sure the apostles were, were certain that they would stop in the garden, as perhaps was Jesus' custom, and then they would continue on to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Bethany. But that night, something unusual happened, something for which they were not quite prepared. There was some uneasiness in the air, to be certain, because Jesus had had to calm them. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. But they were not prepared at all for what was about to happen. We know there was a period of prayer. The Gospel writers tell us that this happened, but only John records the, the text, if you would, of the prayer. The 17th chapter of his Gospel is dedicated to giving us the text of the prayer. John and James and Peter were apparently close enough by that they heard it, and, and perhaps at that point in time it made such an impression that John remembered it, perhaps later the Holy Spirit brought it to his mind, but he gives us the text of that prayer in John 17. And Jesus says something interesting there. He says, I have manifested thy name in verse 6. In verse 4, he said, I have glorified thee on earth, now glorify me. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, he means exactly what John tells us in John chapter 1. We beheld his glory. That word simply refers to the qualities and characteristics that are God. He said, here I am. I am God. You have seen me. You have seen the Father. All that God is in his mercy and his grace and his compassion and forgiveness and holiness, his justice, his righteousness, all that he is. You have seen that in me. I have lived among you for 33 years. I have allowed you to observe my life, and at the end of that time I can say to my Father, I have manifested your name. I have demonstrated your character. They have seen you in me. We understand that. We look at Jesus and we read the accounts of his life in the Gospels and we are awed by what he does and says. And of course... He was God incarnate in the flesh. Of course he represented God. But then Jesus says something I think that is incredibly staggering in John chapter 17, verse 22. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and read it with me. Because this is part of his prayer. He says, And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them. The glory which thou hast given to me, I have given to them. And then he tells us why. That they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me, and didst love them, even as thou didst love me. A number of years ago, when I moved to Delaware, the church of which I was a part of the pastoral team, I was a school administrator, was in the process of going through a major philosophical change of ministry. It was one of the most painful things in which I've ever been involved. Uh, the church uh, came close to splitting, there were a lot of angry and hurt people. Uh, the attendance in the church dropped tremendously during that period of time. As we began to struggle with, what does it mean to be a church? 
the pastor who preceded me had started the church. Uh, he pastored there for 15 years, and after about 10 years of ministry, the church was running nearly a thousand. In the spring of 1978, he told me, and I came in the fall of 1979, but he said in the spring of 1978, they had a Sunday school promotion campaign, and they averaged almost 1,200 for the, the spring. They had a, a very special day, and he said on that day we had almost 1,500 people in attendance. We, we, I was pastoring the fastest growing and largest church in the state of Delaware. He said, I went home that evening after the largest day in the history of the church. My wife went to bed, and I went to the basement. And he said, I sat in the basement, and I wept uncontrollably all night. He said, I sobbed. And he said, I, I cried out to God. I said, if this is the church, if this is what the church is, I don't want anything to do with it anymore. This can't be what you left behind. This can't be the body of Christ in the flesh, in the world. This can't be. And the Lord began to work in his heart and he began to answer the question that he raised that night, what is the church? Let me tell you what the church is. It's nothing terribly profound. It's nothing terribly difficult. It is simply this. We are the body of Christ in the world. We are the body of Christ in the flesh. We are, in one sense, the Word that has become flesh. We are to tabernacle in the world, to take up residence in the world, and invite the world to see God in us. We are the Word of God in the flesh in the world. And we are asking the world to behold His glory through us. Let your light, Jesus said, in a familiar passage of Scripture, so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. As Ron did all those years ago, and as I have done since then, I have stepped back and looked at the church, and I'm quite convinced in my heart that unfortunately that's not what we are. What is the church to you? I came to pastoring uh, by accident, I guess. If one can believe in the sovereignty of God and accidents at the same time. I was a school administrator. I was working on my doctorate at the University of Delaware. I had full intentions of completing my doctorate and teaching in college. That was my goal. To pastor a church was something that made me ill, the thought of it. I mean, people and their problems, all the difficulties of pastoring a church. I didn't want anything at all to do with it. And so when it came to the situation whereby God's sovereign design, I became pastor of the church where I had been working, I stepped back and I said, okay, what is it that people want? What is going on here? What is happening? And I began to discover that people saw the church primarily as a tool to accomplish things in their own lives. It was a place to get their children educated in the Scriptures. It was a place where they could go and, and have friends. It was a place where they could go perhaps and, and utilize some of their gifts and talents. We had a and still do have an excellent music ministry. But what I discovered about the church was it was something that people used to their own benefit. And I began to ask myself this question. 
What does the world see when they look at Pike Creek Valley Baptist Church? What do they see? Do they see the body of Christ alive and living and demonstrating the grace, the qualities and characteristics of God? And they had to admit, no, I didn't see that. People should look at the fellowship that is the church and say, this is what God is like. In fact, I am convinced that God's love among God's people is the most convincing of arguments for the truth of the gospel. And I believe that because the scripture teaches that. Jesus told his apostles, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples and that you have love one for another. He tells us here that He has given us His glory. Peter puts it this way, we have received all things that pertain to life and godliness so that we may be as a body of believers one that the world may know that you love them. How can the world possibly know that God loves them? Unless they see us loving one another. You see, I'm convinced that we've got to live out the message of the Gospel in the context of the community that is the church of Jesus Christ before the world, or they cannot know that our message is true. I'm an educator, and I believe, profoundly believe, in the value and importance of knowing this book, of knowing it in a technical way as well as knowing it in a personal way. That's why you're here, isn't it? Amy could have majored in music at a lot of colleges. The University of Delaware has a wonderful college of music, of fine arts. You may be a business major. I guarantee you, you could have gone to another school and received an education equal to the one you're receiving here in business or in history or political science or biology or any other discipline that you are currently studying. But you came to the master's college, I I believe, because you wanted to know more about God and His Word. And that is admirable. But I've seen enough of the church where we have our theology straight, where our doctrine is correct and accurate, but we are not a convincing argument for the gospel of Jesus Christ because our churches and our fellowships are rent with dissension and anger. We are not the body of Christ unified in the world. When the early church visibly demonstrated that all racial and social barriers had been broken down by the cross of Christ and that through the power of the Spirit, people from every background were now one in Christ, there could be no greater evidence for the truth of the gospel. That's how people are going to know. You can deliver the most profoundly accurate presentation of the redemptive act of Jesus Christ and articulate the gospel message in a way that cannot be misunderstood and still never effectively communicate the meaning of the gospel until we demonstrate that gospel in our lives, in the flesh, in the world. I look out over our congregations... I pastor a congregation like this. We, our church is in a, a yuppie community, if we can use that term anymore. The average home in our community costs about $200,000. Most of the people in my church that I pastor have college degrees. Many of them have graduate degrees. They're professionals. They're well-educated. When I look over my congregation, I see a sea of smiling white faces. 
I see people who are centered on their own desires and needs. And it breaks my heart, quite frankly. Because somehow the church of Jesus Christ must communicate to the world that we are the body of Christ. And unless we do that, we have no hope for convincing them of the message that we have. The very purpose of Christ's self-giving on the cross was not to save isolated individuals, to perpetuate their loneliness, but to create a new community whose members would belong to him, love one another, and eagerly serve the world. Christ died in abject loneliness, rejected by his own nation, deserted by his own disciples, but lifted up on the cross so that he could draw all men to himself. And that is the majesty and mystery of Christ, that in Him, at the cross, we are called to be part of Him and of one another, forever linked by His blood to one another. We are set apart as one body, God's alternative society in the world, so that the world can see His glory in us. And when this occurs, we will begin the process of demonstrating to the world the reality of the gospel. I pull down into the parking lot of our church. I see a sea of minivans. I visit the homes of the people who are members of our church, and I wonder what they do with all the space. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm trying to say this morning. We are very involved in the Crisis Pregnancy Center of Newcastle County and have been for many years. Our church financially supports the ministry of the Crisis Pregnancy Center and many of our people are volunteers. Three of the members of our church sit on the board of an organization called the Door of Hope. The Door of Hope is a subsidiary ministry of Crisis Pregnancy Center of Newcastle and its desire, its goal is to help meet the needs of unwed mothers and their children in our community. So the board got together, a group of people, most of whom are business, business people, and they decided that what they were going to do was they were going to build a home for unwed mothers. Their goal was noble. Somebody gave them the land in a very good location, and they set about to raise a quarter of a million dollars to build the house, and then to raise the monthly support for house parents and the maintenance of the house that would be necessary to house these unwed mothers. Now... Arguing against that is kind of like arguing against apple pie and motherhood. So when I sat down with these three board members who are members of our church, and they came and they presented this, and they said, listen, I really think, they said, we really think it would be a good idea for the church to be involved with this. We've been actively involved in the Crisis Pregnancy Center, and, you know, we have a fairly good-sized church, and we have a large missions budget, and they were hoping for a substantial amount of money. So I began to ask a series of questions of them. I said, let me ask you a question. How many mothers are we going to be able to house with this home that we're building? Oh, we'll be able to house seven mothers and children as well. Isn't that wonderful? So I asked this question. Being involved in this ministry, how many unwed mothers who are in a crisis situation are currently living in Newcastle County, Delaware? And they said, oh, there's, there's, there's probably dozens, maybe several hundred. I said, okay, there are dozens, perhaps a couple of hundred, and we're going to help seven, right? Yeah. So what's wrong with this plan? 
why are we going to build a building? Isn't that what the church does? We, if we do something really well, we build buildings really well. That's our answer to everything. Build a building. Now, sometimes buildings are important. This is important, though it's a beautiful day. We could have chapel outside. I want you to know how much I appreciate the weather. I came here for business, and I was hoping to play some golf. But it's rained every day since I've been here. I'm going to have to go home to Delaware to play golf. We build a building to solve every problem. I said, how many evangelical churches are in Newcastle County that support the Crisis Pregnancy Center? Well, there's 25 to 30 churches that are on our mailing list that are evangelical and their theology that actively support us. I said, you know, let me offer you an alternative plan that will save us a quarter of a million dollars now and a whole lot of money down the road. Why don't we contact each of these churches and begin the process of equipping people in those churches to open their homes to unwed mothers. Doesn't that make more sense? They looked at me like I had just landed from another planet. No, buildings make sense. No, they don't. You see... That's what we want to do. That's the memorial we're going to leave behind. Show me the church in Jerusalem that Jesus left behind. Where's the building? There's shrines all over Jerusalem. Jesus didn't build any of them. When He stood before His apostles and He said in Matthew 16, This is My church and I'm going to build it on the rock, the foundation of My deity, and I'm going to tell you this, that the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. I promise you, he wasn't talking about a building. He was talking about a people called and set apart to demonstrate his holiness and his justice and his mercy and, yes, his love to a lost and dying world that are standing on the side of the road with their hands thrust in their pockets, desperate. And what we do is we offer people buildings. And we wonder why the church is not profoundly affecting the world. Because we are not in the world. And we are not living the glory of God. And manifesting His name. And showing the salt and light. We're too busy saving money to buy our next minivan and the next biggest house. And then our kids graduate from high school. And they go away and we have a four-bedroom or a five-bedroom, three-bath house with a family room you could shoot hoops in. And we want to build another house to put six women and their kids in it. How in the world are we ever going to affect the world for Jesus Christ doing that kind of stuff? When I talk with Ron our former pastor, on one occasion. He said, you know, Alan, I did everything I was told to do. I said, I followed it to the letter. And I produced this. <laughs> if I can do anything for you this morning, if you leave this chapel and you don't remember anything else, remember this. The body of Christ is not a building. It is a people uniquely set apart to demonstrate the character of God to a lost and dying world. And it's a hard thing to understand. 
Let me put it in three contrasts for you. Turn to Mark, would you, this morning. Mark chapter 10. I love the apostles. <laughs> because when I read about them in the gospel, they, they make me look okay. As bad as I am, I don't think I could ever be as dumb as some of these guys were. Chronologically, when we look at Mark chapter 10, we discover something very interesting. Mark is not in perfect chronological order, and the account that is listed here in Mark chapter 10 appears to be part of what happened prior to the meal in the upper room that John talks about in John chapter 13. And you know the account, I'm sure, but it always strikes me. Jesus and his apostles come into the upper room. Now, again, they're not sure what's going to happen, but they are aware something's going to happen. In fact, when you go back to the beginning of John chapter 11, you discover that when word comes to Jesus, they're outside of Jericho. When word comes to Jesus that Lazarus is sick and near death, they, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, and Thomas says, well, we'll go with you. We know this probably means we're going to die, because they were well aware that Jesus was not a popular figure. They had left the, the area of Jerusalem because the, the, the Jewish leaders were intent on destroying this man. They'd gone out into the countryside. They'd been living in the, in the environs of Jericho. But now Jesus set his face to return to Jerusalem, to go to Bethany. And he goes and he raises Lazarus from the dead, and, and several weeks pass, and then we have Palm Sunday, and Jesus, the city to great acclaim, marches right into the temple. He cleanses the temple, turning over the tables of the money changers, and begins a series of confrontations with the Pharisees. And by the end of that week, or the middle of that week, they want that man dead, and they want him dead now, and there's a real tension in the air. And so that night, and I believe it was a Wednesday night, they are in the upper room. And they are preparing to partake of a Passover meal. But in the midst of all this, guess what they're doing? They're fighting with one another. James and John are fighting with one another about who is going to be the first in the kingdom. Who is going to be the one who is going to be the, the, uh, the leader, if you would, in the kingdom. And they begin to argue about that particular situation. James and John in verse 35, the two sons of Zebedee came up to him saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That is what the church is all about today. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's what we want. That's the church. Jesus' reply is instructive. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking for, for are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, that is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it is, for whom it has been prepared. 
And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The contrast is clear. In the upper room, they are gathered around the table partaking of the meal. They're probably a third of the way into the meal when Jesus rises from his couch. He makes his way over into the corner where there is a, a basin of water. And while these guys are arguing about who's going to be the first in the kingdom, Jesus girts himself as a servant. Paul refers to that, if you would, in Philippians chapter 2 when he talks about the fact that Jesus, who was equal with God and thought being equal with God not something that was illegal for him to grasp, but he left it all and he took upon himself the form of a servant. And Jesus went over into the corner and he girt himself as a servant. And he did the job the lowliest servant in the household would do. He began the process of washing the feet of the disciples. I have a friend who pastors a Brethren Church. I don't know if you're familiar with Brethren Church, but they practice foot washing. They do it before the Lord's table. I can't think of anything more humbling, can you, than washing someone's feet When they walked through the city of Jerusalem or through any village and they wore open sandals and they walked through the same streets the animals walked through, their feet tended to get very dirty and, well, I'll leave the rest to your imagination. And since when they ate, they reclined, that could be a real problem. Can you imagine lying down with somebody's feet in your face? Oh, what an aroma. But they were so intent on arguing with one another, so intent on who was going to be the boss, that they had not even been aware of the situation until Jesus got up and he walked over and he began to wash their feet and a silence fell on that group of men that was so thick that you could cut it with the proverbial knife. And when Jesus came to Peter and he began the process of washing his feet, Peter said, Stop! Don't wash my feet. Because Peter, perhaps more than any other man in that room, understood the implications of what it meant that Jesus was washing his feet. He understood that if he allowed his master to wash his feet, then that would be his role, that he would be the one from that point on who would have to wash feet. Can you imagine a career of washing feet? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus shows us a contrast here between ambition and sacrifice. James and John wanted position. What Christ was going to give to them was a lifestyle of sacrifice. There's a contrast here between power and service. What these men wanted was position and power. What Christ wanted for them was to have an attitude of service. The world loves 
power. But leadership and lordship are two distinct concepts. The symbols of an authentically Christian leadership is not the purple robe of an emperor, but the coarse apron of a slave, not a throne of ivory and gold, but a basin of water for the washing of feet. Let me tell you what you're here to do. You are here to learn how to wash feet. And the world is waiting, or at least this country is waiting for a church energized to wash feet. There's a contrast here between comfort and suffering. By asking for thrones and glory, James and John were wanting comfortable security in addition to their glory and power. I have never done anything in my life more difficult than pastoring a church. It's the hardest job in the world because the temptation to power and control is so enormous. I mean, I can't believe it. You guys have to be here. You don't have any choice. You have to come to chapel. You've got to listen to me. I stand up on Sunday morning. We have two services now, and I stand here and I go, I can't believe you guys come every week to listen to me talk for 45 minutes. This is really neat. They come, and I go, you know, your ego can get really big. Now, Amy wanted me to come to her, her recital. I said, Amy, I can't come to your recital. It's too far away. It costs too much money to fly. So she made arrangements for me to speak in chapel. <laughs> Ego, I'm telling you, gets you every time. Power. What a temptation. It's not hard because people have problems. I'm a school administrator. I know problems. <laughs> There's problems no matter what your job is. You see, it's the temptation, the power. It's the temptation, the walking around and going, yes, I pastor a big church. Yes, this is really nice. This is wonderful. Yes, people know me in the community. Yes, this is wonderful. That's the problem. Because what I've been called to do is a ministry of washing feet. And that is hard. But that is the only way the world will ever know that the message I stand on Sunday morning and deliver has any validity. What I want to challenge you to this morning is the ministry of washing feet. Because in that way, profoundly in that way, the Word becomes flesh. And we can tell people, look me over. Invite people into your life. Say, here I am. This is what God is like. It always struck me as unusual that Paul could say, follow me as I follow Christ. That's incredible. Can you say that? And it's lived out in community. I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that one day, when the day when Jesus was talking about love and describing love in terms that were very difficult for people to understand, he said, it's one thing for a man to lay down his life for a friend. That's wonderful love. But I'm telling you this, and I think at this point in time, because Jesus used illustrations all the time, I think he turned and perhaps pointed or at least looked at a Roman soldier and said, but the love that I give you will allow you to love your enemy. 
you live in a community of believers. And it's, in many ways, an isolated community of believers. But it is one of the places where you're going to hone the qualities that will allow you to invite people to come look you over. So that when you leave here, you become part of a community of believers that takes up residence in the world. You see, the reason why I challenge those people in the ministry, the unwed mothers, I said, let me tell you what will happen when we invite them into our homes rather than isolating them over here. You see, what kind of effect will I have on the life of that young woman who lives in my house and on her children? And what will happen when the community hears that this church or these churches together are opening their homes to women in desperate situations and saying, not we're going to support you to live over here, we want you to come here because we want to be in the world. We want the world to see us. We want to take up residence in the world. Come into my house. Live with me. Eat my food. Share what I have. What will happen when 25 or 30 evangelical churches in Newcastle County are doing that? You know what will happen? People will begin to see, not our doctrinal distinctives, not our uh, theological uh, persuasions, they will not see our systematic theologies. What they will begin to see is the Word made flesh living among them. And when they see us demonstrating the glory of God, then they will know that God loves them. And only them. I want you to bow your heads with me. One of the things I discovered, and as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I just want to share one thought with you before we pray. I discovered something when I began going overseas, that this individualistic, narcissistic, very self-centered Christianity is really part of our culture. When I was in Santiago, Chile this last October, <clears throat> I saw wealthy people and poor people sitting side by side in the pews of the church. There is a community. And the reality of who God is is lived out fully in the lives of those people. The pursuit of the people there, not to buy the next minivan. I was in a church in Lima, Peru, where there were 700 people. There were seven cars parked on the street. Four of them belonged to missionaries. They're not pursuing where they're going to buy the next minivan. They're not looking to build the next bigger house. They're sharing their meager resources with whoever has a need. But in America, we're intent on our own comfort. And that's why, not to the glory of God, I think, that we build the big church buildings we build sometimes. For our own comfort. I wonder if the members of our church would come if we didn't have an air conditioning unit or a heater in the winter. I don't know. 
All I know as a pastor is I want the world to see Christ in me and in the body of believers to which I am called to serve. And I hope when you leave this morning, you will leave with this understanding that the church is simply this. It is the Word made flesh in the world. We are here to take up residence and invite the world to see God in us. And that means inviting them into our lives and invading their world. Father, I am so selfish. I am so prone to complain about trivial things because of the discomfort that they cause in my own life. If my favorite shirt isn't ironed and hanging in the closet, I get upset. How foolish of me. So, Father, I pray that once again this morning, as a result of the message, that I will again see renewed in my mind the fact that I am part of the body that you have left here. And that I am called to invite the world to see me. And I am to be light and salt that the world can know. You have sent your Son because you love the world. Father, I thank you that Jesus crossed the chasm between heaven and earth to dwell among us, to provide redemption, and to demonstrate to us who you are, to show us your love and your grace and your mercy. And yes, your holiness and your righteousness and your justice as well. We are your church. May we be a light on a hill. May the world see our good works and glorify you, our Father, who art in heaven. We come to you this morning robed in the righteousness of Christ. And in the name of he who is our sovereign Savior and Lord, we pray. Amen.